Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 40? We're near the end of Book 1 of the Psalter. There's a certain flow that we've, I think, see emerging here as we get to the end of the first book. David, for the last several Psalms, has been stating his agony not only from enemies, but from personal sin and the effects of sin uh, that it had on him. Psalm 40 seems to be somewhat of a turning point uh, for David, where he's no longer concentrating on the physical effects of sin, um, but we see him now moving into that of prayer, a prayer of deliverance, a prayer for continued deliverance, and ultimately, We see that Psalm 40 is a prayer of Christ. And these would have been words that would have come from Christ's own lips as he himself prayed as he walked the earth. And so therefore, this psalm, it teaches us how to pray. It teaches us what can be consisting of our prayer life. And so let us hear this. Beginning in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, 
I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of God. The text naturally divides up into three sections. In the first five verses, we see the psalmist is petitioning the Lord because he has been restored by the Lord. In verses 6 through 11, we see what the requirements of the Lord are. And then finally, verses 12 through 17, we see the request that the psalmist makes to the Lord. But it begins on an up note that he has been restored. We see his rescue and restoration by the Lord. And again, we're flowing out of the previous Psalms where he is pleading with the Lord to rescue him, to deliver him from his transgressions. And here now, he begins this prayer here with, I waited patiently for the Lord. That idea of he was pleading to the Lord and continually praying to the Lord in the agony of death that he was experiencing due to his, his sin. And look at the responses. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And he's rescued here after patiently waiting on the Lord. And it says the Lord inclined, that is that the Lord turned to David after the season of prayer. And I think that we, it's important to keep the, the, the Psalter in its context. David was in a season of deep despair. He was distraught. He was agonizing. He was in trial. And he was praying continually to the Lord without any relief. And after a time... It says the Lord turned to him. Let me just tell you, the Lord hears the cries of his people. The Lord heard the cries of his people in Egypt when they were burdened by the taskmasters. The Lord heard their cries, and the Lord hears the cries of his people now. And there may be a season that you go through where you don't have relief or you don't have a response from the Lord, but that doesn't mean that the Lord is silent to you or that the Lord has turned a deaf ear to you. It is an interval of time that we often face because the Lord is shaping us through it. There can be times, as we've seen in Scripture, because of our sinfulness, we think we can just go to the Lord with unhindered prayer, and that's just not true. Our sins actually hinder our prayer life. Yes, in Christ we stand justified, and the legal declaration of our justification, if you are in Christ, stands there as you are legally declared not guilty before God, but that doesn't mean that in this Christian life that when we go through periods of sin that it doesn't affect our life, our prayer life, our relationship with God. David was a man that was justified, but yet he was a man that went through a season of, of struggle. His own sin physically brought him down, and the Lord was using that to shape him. 
The Lord just didn't rescue him out of it. But whatever the trial is that the Lord has us going through, we know that he's doing it for our good and according to his purposes. And so if it seems as if you're praying to the Lord and you have no relief, you be like the woman before the unjust judge. You continue to take your pleas to the Lord because he hears your cries. He's never deaf to you. David says that he heard him. He inclined, that is, he turned to him. And when he turned to him, notice the language of verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now, we don't know that David was ever put in a, a, a pit or a bog or anything like that. This is just this poetic language that David has been restored to a position of advantage. But if you do a word search on this pit, it's interesting some of the parallels that you find in the life of David to the life of Joseph. And when you look at, do a word study on, on this word pit, where is it that Joseph's brothers placed him? They placed him in a pit to sell him off. Where did Potiphar have Joseph placed? had him placed in a pit. What's interesting about Joseph being in the pit in which he was, and I think there are many parallels that you find between the life of David and Joseph, but it's interesting that as Joseph was in the pit, you read these words in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. His presence never left him, even though he was in a pit. The Lord never left him. But what is very interesting, if the chronology of of all of these things with David's life in Psalm 40 is correct, the Lord lifts Joseph from the pit so that he may rule over Egypt. If the chronology is right in Psalm 40, and this is why... It's very possible there's a parallel here. David is raised from the pit to rule over Israel. Very interesting to think about that. There's something else that we have to recognize. While we're not in David's unique position or Joseph's unique position in the history of redemption, we nonetheless, too, have been raised from a pit to rule. We have been raised from death to life that we may be joint heirs. Look what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That the saints will judge with the risen Lord Jesus You see, in our very salvation, we too are lifted from a pit of destruction. In other words, apart from Christ, you're hell-bound. You're on a pathway of destruction, but in Christ, we are raised from the bog, from the pit of destruction. 
and we are raised in and with Christ. And we with Christ will one day rule the nations. What a beautiful picture. Let me ask you, is there ever a lack of things to pray for or praise the Lord for if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at the promise. You have been lifted out of the pit of destruction. And you will one day judge the nations. Look what this praise looks like. This praise for restoration. He put, verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. It elicits a song of praise from his mouth because he has been rescued. It, it elicits worship. A new song has been put into his mouth. And there's a result of it. There's a result of the Lord's work in the life of the saint, which is for the purpose of God's glory, that others will see fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's what it is. He rescued me, and the result of this is many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And as you look through the psalm, David continually recounts before the great congregation the wondrous deeds and mercy of the Lord to the people. If the Lord has rescued you, you have a song to sing, so to speak, and you have a testimony to give. It is not your personal testimony so much, but as the gospel that has saved you. And through that preaching of the gospel, there are those that will put their trust in the Lord. You see, the Lord works in us His mercy so that we just won't remain silent, but so that we will praise Him. That's the end in it. That's, the, that's where it's moving. In your salvation, in the Lord's work, in the Lord's mercy, in His grace to you, is moving to this end of worship and praise for what He has done. And then you'll notice the result of this is verse 4, is blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You are blessed if you have trusted in the Lord. And it is very similar to what you see. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It takes us back to Psalm 1 almost of the blessed man whose delight is upon the law of the Lord and he meditates upon it day and night. That is the blessed man, not the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Here it's blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. And then there's a contrast immediately who does not turn to the proud and to those who go astray after a lie. He says that the Lord, blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. Now, what does that mean? That means that the Lord is his security, that the Lord is his confidence, that the Lord is his assurance. It is in the Lord where he has refuge. And this is in contrast to those who turn to the proud, those who go after a lie, 
that they go off of the path that God has chosen. And that word proud, we think of it as arrogant. It's sometimes translated as Egypt. But you can think of this, you have two choices. Is this, is that you can trust in the word of God, that law that we're called to meditate upon day and night, and we can, we can trust in the promises of God that God is sovereign and that God's plan for our life is actually good and in it is blessing. Or we can look at the things that are tangible in this world, the shiny things of this world, the things in this world that elicit our attention, that are very tangible to us, like going back to Egypt because there we can be rescued, there we can be fat and sleek and have all of the food we want rather than trusting in the Lord and this manna that He's given us. You're always faced with that choice, that which is tangible that you can see or the unseen providence of God. Let me tell you, it's that unseen hand of God's providence where there's true blessing. There's no blessing going back to Egypt. There is just slavery. There is just being back in the pit of destruction. But blessing is the one who finds his trust in the Lord. Spurgeon says a man may be as poor as Lazarus, as hated as Mordecai, as sick as Hezekiah, as lonely as Elijah, but while his hand of faith can keep its hold on God, none of his outward afflictions can prevent his being numbered among the blessed. What a wonderful truth. We're so quick to go after those things in this world that are the shiny objects of this world. But blessed who makes the one who makes his trust in the Lord. The blessed state is being of faith. And we receive the promises of blessings through faith that trust in the Lord. And David, look at how he, he expands this idea of the blessed man in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can p- compare with you. That's what he says. What the Lord has done for him. He's defining this blessed state. But I want you to notice, in doing this, he goes back to this theme that in the Lord blessing him, it's for an end. There's a reason for it. It's moving, and the Lord is working in these wondrous deeds and these wondrous thoughts for this purpose, what David says he will do. I will proclaim and tell of them Yet they are more than can be told. Wonderful truths of what God has done for us in the gospel. It is beyond comprehension. 
But yet it's so easy for us to have silent lips before a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. How quick we are to just, in all that the Lord has blessed us with, salvation is the greatest blessing we could receive, but the Lord provides so many of our provisions. He provides all of our provisions for us. But, but even beyond that, we have all of these wonderful, really truly tangible things such as joy and peace and wonderful fellowship and Christian brotherhood and sisterhood. Uh, this, this idea that we are adopted into the family of God and we really actually experience that with one another. We have so many of these blessings, but yet so often it, it's like we, we zip our mouth shut of these wonderful deeds and thoughts that the Lord has given us. When really we need to be with David, I will will proclaim and tell of them. I will share these things. There's more than that can be told. In other words, we'll never run out of truths that we can share of what God has done for us. In other words, these blessings that God multiplies upon us are for his praise, for his glory, for his worship. Now, let me just say this. is This is a perspective to take in trials. Because we see that even in dire circumstances, that God's providence is working itself out in our life. And the end is his glory. And if God's glory in our life is that which consumes us, then praise always follows that. If we're concerned with God's glory, we cannot be as concerned with God's glory as he is. But if we could be concerned with God's glory, knowing that He is sovereign, that can lead to praise and worship in even the most difficult situations because we know God is working things for His glory. Not only for the difficulty and how it's shaping us can we praise the Lord, but we can always praise the Lord for the perfection of His plan and the perfection of of what his providence looks like. What a meditation of prayer, isn't it? David moves from there to the requirements of the Lord. In verse 6, we see the delight of the worshiper. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, the backdrop of this seems to be 1 Samuel. Let's turn over there for a second. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was told to devote to destruction the Amalekites. He was to destroy all of it. And what did Saul do is instead of destroying all as he was commanded to do, he kept back some of the good stuff for the purpose of 
sacrifice. He held it back. And Samuel says these words. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. And so you see that Saul himself thought, I can disobey God if I do this sacrifice because there's something pious in this sacrifice. God likes sacrifices, so I can disobey God just as long as I do this over here. One commentator says this, sacrifice makes provision for those unsuccessful at obedience. But obedience is Yahweh's first choice, and sacrifice is provided for those who try to obey and fail. Saul uses sacrifice as a means for which he can disobey God. You hear the similarities between what Samuel told Saul and what David writes here. And you probably also hear in that Psalm 51, verse 16, where David says there... It's not these things that you delight in, but it is in obedience that you delight in. Look what happens in when he says this, to, just to follow the, through this. He says, Then I said, this is where we connect the chronology of David's life with the events that are, he's writing here. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. This is an amazing promise of a king that would come. When Samuel uttered those words to Saul, Samuel says, if you would have been obedient, the kingdom would have been yours. But because of your disobedience, God is tearing the kingdom from you, and one of your neighbors is being raised up now. You read in the next chapter of 1 Samuel, guess what happens? The anointing of David by Samuel. And as David looks back on that, in that reflection of that rejection of Saul, he can say, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Think about the, the, the marvel of that statement. David is looking back to Genesis that there was a promise of one coming. David's looking back through how that promise works its way out through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah. David is thinking of his great-great-grandmother, Ruth. He's thinking through these things. And as he is anointed king, David says, those things were 
written of me. David's saying at that point where he is anointed, he comes to this recognition that it was him that was being prophesied about. It's amazing about this, that David sees this fulfillment in him, but David knows that this is not the end of the story. David knows that it's actually not in him that this finds its true fulfillment, but through his son will the fullness of this be realized. We see in 2 Samuel, in verse 7, or chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So David was promised that it actually wouldn't find its fullness of fulfillment in him, but would find its fullness of fulfillment in one that would come from him. You remember this morning as we were looking at the mystery of the incarnation that Christ, His human nature comes from the human nature of Mary, from the line of David. He was the actual seed of David according to His human nature. And so we see this fulfillment in this future son of David. And David prophesied of this. And put this together of what Psalm 40 is saying. As David's looking forward to his greater son, the Lord Jesus. And sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written in my heart. Saul was supposed to be obedient. Saul failed. David was anointed to be obedient. David failed. In fact, he says his iniquity was more than he could count. But his greater son was obedient. And this is where the author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to notice what it says. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Did you catch that? When the Lord Jesus came in the flesh, he said these words. These are words that Jesus himself prayed. And what we see is that Christ was obedient. Christ as obedient was also the sacrifice. And look at verse 12. He's also the eternal king. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Amazing that David prophesied this, recognizing that it wouldn't be fulfilled in him, but in the Lord. And I I just want you to know that what Hebrews teaches us about Psalm 40, explicitly that Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm. It is a prayer of Christ. It would have been what Christ himself prayed. Christ himself would have been taught by this psalm and recognized that he was the greater son of David. And it's amazing what it says in verse 6. But you have given me an open ear. The Son always did the will of his Father in all ways. Look at I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Can you hear again the prayers of the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane that we just read from Mark? But not my will, your will be done. The Lord always did the will of his Father. But what does the Lord delight in according to this verse? The the Lord delights in obedience. The Lord delights in being obedient to his word. This is the will of God, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. That is God's will for your life is obedience, sanctification. We are saved from our sin to be transformed into the image of Christ. The idea that we just come to the Lord apart from obedience is to fundamentally misunderstand the very nature of God And the grace that he pours out in his gospel. But I'm I'm afraid that that's what's so too often embraced. And what passes is Christianity. We scream grace, but then we do whatever we want. Which just tells us we have not experienced grace. The Lord calls us to sanctification. That's his will for your life, and you cannot do that apart from his grace and the saving work of the gospel. The unregenerate man can no more be sanctified than I can get up and fly. It's a sovereign work of God in our life, sanctification. 
But look what Jesus says. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. What is the promise of the new covenant? That you no longer will they have to teach their neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know me, and my law will be written upon their heart. That is the promise of the new covenant. The Lord gives us the delights of our heart which is his law, his word. Let me ask you, do you delight in the will of the Lord? Do you delight in his word? It's written on your heart. Even for the unregenerate, it's still written on their heart. It's what restrains our society from going into chaos. Do you delight in God's word? Is it something that we take delight in, that we treasure? The Lord Jesus says that he delighted to do the will of the Father. We go to verse 9 and we see the proclamation of this worshiper. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This is an amazing verse because, again, that theme that... David shares his faith. He doesn't conceal it. And we, we know that he really did not conceal it because he says, as you know, Lord, I did this as you know. He did not conceal what the Lord had done for him, but he shares it and how often we pray and we pray and we pray. And when the Lord answers it, we just go back to business as usual. Rather than stopping and saying, oh, oh Lord, thank you. And I am going to share of your goodness to the great congregation. It's amazing what this says here. Verse 11 is added to verses 9 and 10 of praise. As for you, Lord, you will not restrain from me your mercy, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. This is an amazing statement. It's not David's faithfulness that preserves him, but it's God's. And you notice that from verses 9 through 11, faithfulness is mentioned three times, and it's this attribute of God, not of David. Where did David's faithfulness get him? It was the Lord's faithfulness that will preserve him. It's his his said, that steadfast love that is mentioned twice. You see salvation and deliverance are mentioned. You see this mercy of his is mentioned as this is what I'm going to pray for. This is what I'm going to praise you for. And he says that it is these things that preserve him. What preserves you are these same things. Why we are not Judas is because the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's deliverance, His steadfast love upon you and His Son rescues you and it preserves you. And notice this, 
Where does David recount this to the great congregation? It says it twice. To true worshipers, he shares this with them. Now David moves on to show us why he needs the Lord in requesting of the Lord. Verse 12, it's regards to his sin. And then you look in verses 14 and 15, he's praying to the Lord in regards to his enemies. But first in sin, he begins with a confession of sin. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. His sin has encompassed him, and that is, it's surrounded him, it's above him, it's below him, it's on all sides of him. His evils have come around him, and and they're too great to count. And then it says that sin, iniquities, have overtaken him. That is uh, overtaken. It is still like the idea of being pursued and captured. David's saying this, my life is filled with sin. I'm struggling with it constantly. I wake up and there it is. I go through the day and it's right there before me. Sin is always before me. He says this as it blinds me. He says they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And he, it, it's reminiscent to those physical aspects or effects of sin that we read in Psalm 38 where he says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. His sin is overwhelming to him. And so what he does he do here? What is this? This is a confession of his sin. And the following his confession of sin is this. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. He goes to the one who will deliver him, the one whom he sinned against. And he goes on to his enemies. And you see a repetition of words here where he says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether. Why? Because they seek to snatch away my life. So when he has this imprecatory prayer here of bringing people to dishonor, to shame, it's for this reason they're trying to kill him. He goes on to say, let let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt, rather than delighting in the Lord, in the will of the Lord. Rather than that, they, they actually are delighting in hurting the Lord's anointed one. So let them be brought to dishonor. He says, let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, those who would taunt the Lord's anointed, let them be brought to shame. He gives three petitions, and in each petition, he gives a reason. David was just not praying vindictively. He was praying these things to the Lord because people were attacking him, the anointed one who has realized that through him will come his greater son. What an amazing 
statement that David realizes the price put upon his head. He says in verse 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. This is for those who seek the Lord. We are called to be a people that seek the Lord. We are called to seek the Lord. We see in Psalm 105 verse 4, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. We're told that those that do seek after the Lord will in fact find the Lord. In Jeremiah 29 verse 13, You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. But the problem is is that our heart doesn't want to seek the Lord. This is why Psalm 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, but there's none who seek after the Lord. That's the problem. There is none that seek after the Lord. So what do we make of this? Well, I think verse 17 answers it. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You see, the seekers of the Lord are those that the Lord has first sought out. We love Him because He first loved us. There are no seekers of the Lord apart from those the Lord Himself has sought out and has given to His greater son, David, or the greater son of David, excuse me. This is why He says, I am poor and needy. Friends, that's all of us before all they got it. Poor and needy. You think of Luther's famous words, We're beggars. This is true. We bring nothing to the table. It's the Lord that takes thought. It is the Lord who seeks a people out for himself. And we can truly say, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. What a wonderful reminder of prayer. The blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. And that the Lord Jesus delighted to do the will of his Father. And what a wonderful reminder that is for us, because you and I don't always delight in doing the will of the Lord. But there's one who stands in our place, who never failed to delight in his Father's will. Who never failed to delight in doing his Father's will. Who never failed in accomplishing that which the Father had given him to accomplish. Whereas you and I fell. There's one that stands on our behalf that didn't fail, and he gives us to the Father. And we stand in him. And because we stand in him, 
we can say, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written within my heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your sovereign grace that calls a people to yourself. That you give a people to your Son and he died for them. And that he keeps them. He ever lives to mediate on their behalf. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you for this wonderful prayer of David and a prayer that was said of Jesus himself and how much it teaches us about our own prayer life and teaches us about our own need for your grace, your mercy. And how this and these things are to spur us on to sharing that with others. In particular, sharing that within the great congregation that we get to gather and share of your goodness together in this fellowship. Father, we thank you for your many mercies to us. We thank you for your blessings. And certainly, Lord, we know that there's too many for us to name. For your wondrous deeds are too great to number. We praise you for your work. We praise you for your provision. We praise you for your great mercies. And we praise you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.